Uh, the first reading from Acts is about the conversion of Saul, uh, the Apostle Paul. Uh, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he's praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he's done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me, so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. And then he rose and was baptized, and taking food he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples of Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Follow-up reading from the Revelation reading from last week, verses 8-14 through of chapter 5. <clears throat> and when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, 
To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Holy Gospel according to St. John, the 21st chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we'll go with you. And they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. And just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, and yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. And that disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat dragging the net full of fish for they weren't far from the land, about a hundred yards off. And when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. And when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. So let's look at the gospel reading this morning. And it's a really good one. There's a ton of stuff in here uh, that I'm not going to talk about, that I thought about talking about, but it's just too much uh, for one sermon. And uh, if you want to explore this stuff, uh, let me again recommend community group to you or coming downstairs after this for adult Bible study. Uh, there's, there's stuff, what we're not going to talk about is this prediction of Peter's death at the end, uh, that's interesting. 
What does Jesus mean when he says, uh, feed my lambs? What is that about? Um, what is it, you know how he says, uh, do you love me three times in a row? Why does he do that? We're actually uh, not going to talk about the word love there. I know that that's a, a, a interesting topic, uh, what Jesus means by love. This is all stuff that we're not going to talk about today. Uh, but I would encourage you to keep on exploring it um, uh, in community with other Christians, with uh, your fellow brothers and sisters here at St. James. But here's what we, uh, let's, uh, let's do talk about this. A uh, couple things I want to uh, talk about from this, and they both have to do, from this text, and they both have to do with mission. Uh, so first of all, uh, as this is kind of a side note to start off with, which is kind of a bad way to start off a sermon, let me go back and uh, reiterate something I said on Easter Sunday morning. Jesus appears to his disciples here, and uh, they see him, and aside from the content of their conversation, it's, and actually uh, the weird miracle about uh, catching all the fish on the other side of the boat, it's actually fairly mundane. And at the end of this text, John says, I wrote this stuff down. I saw it happen. I know it's true. Uh, so again, just to rehash what I said Easter Sunday morning. The arguments that Jesus rose from the dead are not philosophical. John's not going to say, he's not going to talk about the nature of life and the question of uniformity in the universe does everything always happen the same? Just because everybody that you know dies and doesn't come back to life, does that mean that it's impossible? Or is it possible that there are outliers in otherwise universally uniform situations? He doesn't discuss that. He also does not discuss this in a spiritual or a religious sense. Both those words, I don't care for both those words. But what he doesn't do is say, Jesus rose from the dead, man, and you just have to believe it. Like, just find something deep inside of you. You have to have faith. It's going to help you get through your life if you can just believe this. I was at a prayer, some of you might have been there too, I don't know, but I was at a prayer breakfast this week where a guy spoke who was sort of vaguely Christian. And he talked about prayer and the power of prayer. And what the what he, what he came up with as far as the power of prayer was basically, it really helps you feel better when you pray. And when other people know that you're praying for them, it's encouraging to them that somebody cares enough to pray for them. Okay, so yeah, there's psychological benefits to having hope for the future. That's not what's going on here. John's argument and the rest of the disciples' arguments for the resurrection of Jesus are actually pretty mundane. I walked out of the boat and he was cooking fish. I was there. Like I saw it happen. Now the question though is like, so what are you gonna do? What are you gonna do with that? Well, what you and I are going to do with that is we're going to do the same thing we do with any sort of witness account of any event. Why do you know that the Cardinals got beat by the Cubs yesterday? Uh, because it was on the news. Somebody said it was also uh, televised, live. Uh, you look at it, you trust the TV, you flip on your phone and you dial up the MLB.com app and it says the Cardinals lost, and you trust whoever put that information on there because what reason do they have for not doing that? If they start lying on the MLB.com app, people are going to stop using the app. And so you trust the app because there's actually a benefit to them to telling the truth. That's exactly the same tact that you're going to take with anything. Uh, your kid comes home from school and says, this happened. And it sounds a little bizarre, but you kind of weigh instantly. Instantly you're weighing in your head, is this kid the kind of kid who tells crazy stories? 
Or is this kid one of my sane kids? Are the person that they're telling the story about, do I know this person? Is this the way that they act or not? Should I check with this person to see what their version... All these things are going on at your head at the same time, and you're weighing, is it true or not? And that's what you're going to do with the Bible, too. John's going to say, I was there, I saw it happen, and you're going to ask the question, same as if you were a police detective. Okay, who else saw this, and does their, does their version of the events look the same? Not identical. That's an indication that they got, got together and lined their stories up, which is a good indication to any police detective that uh, there's a lie happening. And the stories that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the eyewitness accounts, are all the same, but not identical. Weird little features that are different, timings that are different. This is a good indication that somebody's telling the truth. It's not proof, of course. You never have proof. It's possible that the MLB.com app made a mistake. Also, what benefit is it to saying this story? What is John going to get out of it if he can convince you that Jesus rose from the dead when he really didn't? And the answer is, we can go back and look at the life of John and Matthew and Peter and the early apostles, and the answer is nothing. They got nothing out of it. The very last line of this is Jesus telling Peter the way that he was going to bring about the glory of God by suffering. That was the road that Peter had for believing this story. That's the road that Peter had in front of him for telling you this story, is that he was going to get killed for it. Unless, now, what, the, what is the evidence against the resurrection from the dead? Basically, it comes down to this. I've never seen it happen before. Or, what's behind that is, since the 1700s, we white people in the cultural West don't believe in stuff like this. And so it's superstitious. That's what it comes down to. These are all not great reasons for believing or disbelieving anything because that's what we white people in the West think. Instead, you take it face value. Unless there's a good reason to disbelieve, you take it face value. Now, again, the Holy Spirit's involved here too, right? I can't convince you. If you're just determined to believe that Jesus didn't rise from the dead, John can sit here and say, he handed me a slice of fish. I'm telling you I was there. He can say that all he wants and you're not going to believe it. There is Holy Spirit involved here. But basically, this is not some weird supernatural esoteric knowledge that's out there that only the enlightened, that only the mystically minded can have. It's it's verifiable in the means that normal history is verifiable. That was kind of a long sidebar. I'll go faster here. (coughs) It's kind of a weird story because the reading that we had last week ended with resurrection of Jesus. He appears to his disciples. There's this stunning confession by Thomas. Thomas says, Thomas looks at him and says, my Lord and my God. That's kind of like the, that's the high point of the Gospel of John. And then John sort of wraps it up by saying, Jesus did so many much, so, so, so many more things that I can't even, I don't have time or space to write down here. But I put these down here so that you would believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And then that's it. And then there's this sort of, Tack on story on the end. I mean, you, you would think that's like a great place to wrap it up, you know, the confession that my Lord, my God, the summary. But then there's no, there's this sort of like weird denouement story tacked on to the end. Uh, Matthew does this too. There's the resurrection. And then at the end, there's this great commissioning thing. Luke does it too. Luke has the resurrection. And then Jesus appears to the disciples on the road to Emmaus for the exact same reason that Matthew does. So that Jesus can say to these disciples, look, This is the way the story's gone. God creates this world. Humans screw the world up. 
God comes up with a plan to rescue the world. He sends his son to accomplish this. His son rises from the dead. And now he's putting all of us on mission in the name of his son to continue this work. And then, in fact, Luke follows that up with an entire sequel, the book of Acts, to kind of flesh out what all that means to be on mission for Jesus. John's going to do the same thing. You have the resurrection, the confession that because of the resurrection, it's easily acknowledgeable that he's God and Lord. And then there's this bit at the end, and it's about mission. God's going to put his disciples on mission. So uh, Jesus rises from the dead. He appears to his disciples a couple times, and then they decide they're going to go fishing. Uh, what's wrong with going fishing? Uh, actually, nothing. I mean, this is what they do, right? Uh, Jesus rose from the dead, and now they're going to be like, okay, that's great. He rose from the dead. Uh, what next? Well, I, I don't know. I don't know. Let's go fishing. I mean, there's nothing wrong with this, right? It's their job, and it's probably something that they enjoy as well. Uh, but this is not what they would be doing in the book of Acts, right? In the book of Acts, they were extremely focused on this mission. But here, before they get this commission for the mission, before the Holy Spirit arrives at Pentecost, there's this sort of general like, okay, Jesus rose from the dead. Great. Who wants to go to lunch afterwards? There's this, and this kind of, it almost feels like we are John 21 people. Like we haven't been put on mission frequently. I don't mean like any of you specifically, but like the Christian church in North America. It feels like, oh yeah, we believe Jesus rose from the dead. Uh, that's great. I hope the Cardinals bounce back today. And, and not, that, not that you shouldn't go to lunch or enjoy the Cardinal game, but Jesus is going to come and he's going to meet with them and he's going to say, actually, I've got something big for you to do. I need you to feed my sheep. And also I'm going to send my Holy Spirit to kind of to, to, to empower you and to put you on this mission. So, all right, two things about this mission that I want us to look at. And the first is that uh, and none of this is like groundbreaking. The first is that this mission is powered by Jesus. Look at verse 4. Uh, Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. This is quite possibly just because it's dawn, and uh, the light's not great, and uh, he's far off, and they just don't know that it's him. Jesus yells out to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no, they hadn't caught any fish. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. Which, this happened earlier to them. That Jesus told them, in, in the gospel, this, Jesus says, cast your net on the other side of the boat. And they catch this huge amount of fish at the same time. And it, it almost sinks the boat and rips up their nets. Jesus does the same thing here. And um, when they cast it, this is in verse 6, uh, they were not able to haul it in because of the great quantity of fish. There's actually 153 of them, which is kind of a very specific number, isn't it? And then in verse 7, that disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it's the Lord. And then when Peter saw, or heard that it was the Lord, he took off to go meet him. So this mission that they're on, so what this story is about, is it, I mean, it's, it's a literal story. They were fishing. John puts it here because it's this sort of like picture of, they've been commissioned earlier by Jesus to be fishers of men. And now, just like the earlier story about the great miraculous catch, it's a picture of their inability to do it on their own. They need Jesus to do this. And Jesus says, I'm going to give you directions. And when I give you directions, what didn't work before is now going to work. The mission that we have at St. James is not our mission, of course. And like I said, this is not groundbreaking. This is Christianity 101. It is Jesus' mission. It's going to have to be him that does this. And so, you know, all this stuff is fine. But we can talk about like church growth strategies 
okay, that's great. But actually, it's pointless unless Jesus is doing the work here. We can talk about uh, better counseling techniques or how to reach out to people better, better evangelism techniques, these these sorts of things. Uh, I'm not saying that's bad, but it's absolutely pointless unless Jesus is the central focus of what we're doing here. We can actually even, to hit a little bit closer to home, we can actually talk about Lutheran theology if you want to. We could, if This is one of the mistakes that all of our churches make, Lutheran churches as well as other uh, churches that aren't Lutheran. To think that the point here is Lutheran theology, it's actually not. The point is Jesus. Lutheran theology will not lead us to Jesus. Jesus, I believe, will lead us to Lutheran theology. But if we make Lutheran theology the center, we're just going to be spinning our wheels. We're going to be self-propagating. We're going to be inbred. And so Jesus has to be at the center. And when Jesus is at the center, when Jesus is giving us directions, when we're actually immersing ourselves in the way that Jesus comes and meets with us, we are going to see great things happen because Jesus accomplishes stuff. And I'm not, I'm not saying that there's going to be 153 people come to faith this week. But whatever happens, it will be miraculous, and it will be incredible, and it will be big. And when I say all those things, I don't mean necessarily numerically in people coming to faith. I just mean in dynamic evidence that Christ is at work in his Holy Spirit in the church. If we're focused on Christ, if we let Christ be the the driver of this mission and not us. I think probably most of you are on board. Nobody's going to say, no, I don't like that. Um, But it's worth saying out loud because that's Jesus' point to them. And also, it's worth saying it out loud because, like like I said about the Lutheran theology thing, the enemy is not going to tempt us to become a Satanist church, right? I mean, the enemy's going to say, you know what you guys need to do? You really, really need to double down on teaching each other Lutheran theology because he knows that we're all going to be like, oh yeah, that's good, Lutheran theology. I'm Lutheran, and I like theology. Lutheran theology, that's good. That's the kind of like drug that can easily draw you away from the Savior. Not because it's bad, but because it's deceitful. Not Lutheran theology, but the lie that Lutheran theology is the answer. Or like a special church, a special mission we might start here, a church growth technique or something like that. We can get focused on that. Even if it's something like Bible study, right? Paul says about the Jews in Romans 11, I testify that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. And if you can be drawn away from the mission of Jesus, even by a zeal for like a vague sort of idea of God or prayer or Bible study, the enemy will use that to pull us away from Jesus. Now, all that to say, prayer and Bible study is all super important. But the point isn't having prayer and Bible study or community groups or worship services or music programs or Sunday schools or VBSs. That's not the point. The point is Jesus. All of those things have to flow out from that. And if our mission is to have VBS and a music program and Bible studies and we're not focused on Jesus, then we're going to be off mission. And then we're going to be one of those churches that's spinning its wheels, that's inbred, that sits around a couple of years from now is like, what? why are we so stagnant? Well, we, we, we stopped listening to the guy on the shore who's giving us directions. That's what we stopped doing. All right, here's the second thing. This mission, I could have picked, there's so many things. We, we, we could talk about love. We could talk about, you know, that, that do, do you love me three times? We could talk about suffering, the very last line. But can we talk about forgiveness? And again, I'm going to piggyback on last week's sermon just a bit here. Look at verse... Uh, Let's read verses uh, uh, 15 and following uh, one more time. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, "Uh, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than these? What are the these? 
There's three options here. Do you love me more than this fishing life that you have? Do you love me more than this boat, these nets? Um, it's possible. It's not my favorite option. Do you love me? Do you love me more than these guys love me? That's probably, this is probably Peter's, this is probably Peter's bugaboo. This notion that if all else, if everybody else denies you, I will never deny you. I'm the leader of this group. I will never, I'm the one, you can count on me. I'm the one person, you know, he looks around the room, if everybody else here, it's kind of obnoxious when you're sitting with all your friends and you kind of throw them under the bus like that. If everybody else here denies you, I would never do it. And I think that Jesus' question is this. Do you love me more than these? Is that you, Peter? Are you are you the one who loves me the most? And of course, Peter's going to be feeling guilty about this because the last time that Peter in the story was standing around a charcoal fire talking with somebody, he was telling people, I'm not one of his disciples. I'm not one of his disciples. You weren't one of the, you were the disciple. You were the number one disciple. He's denying Jesus and now gathered around a charcoal fire again, standing in front of his resurrected Lord. Jesus is going to say, do you love me more than all the rest of these guys? Is that you, Peter? And Peter's not bold enough to say it at this point. He's going to say, I do love you. You know I love you. Uh, I was listening to uh, a baseball podcast, and this is going to come up again. Uh, some of you know R- Ricky Henderson. Not, not this podcast, but baseball. Uh, Ricky Henderson broke Lou Brock's record in 1980-something. And uh, he remember he stood up and he made this speech about Lou Brock used to be uh, the standard bearer for uh, base stealing, but now I am the greatest. Uh, and years later, he felt intense guilt for this. And in his Hall of Fame speech, he said, I've always liked Muhammad Ali, and I've always admired his boast that he was the greatest. But today I stand before you, and I am very, very humble. That was his last line. There's something about, there's something about this note, you know, we're, we're all proud. And it takes something like this. It takes a little taste of our own brokenness. It takes a little taste of our own pride put back into our face to see, I actually can't stand up to the things I like to believe about myself. That's kind of where Peter's at. And so Jesus says to him a second time in, uh, uh, at the end of verse uh, 15, uh, um, he said to him, uh, I'm sorry, he said to him, feed my lands, beginning of verse 16, he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because this, this keeps on going on right now because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Why three times? Because I, I think almost certainly because it's a reminder to Peter that he denied Jesus three times. And it's sort of this, do you love me? Okay. Uh, you're back on mission. Feed my sheep. Tom Wright tells this story. He and his wife had this dinner party, and they invited some friends over. And one of their friends uh, volunteered to help clean up afterwards. And the guy was talking a lot, and just talking about the party and talking about everything else. And they were like, okay, we need to get work done. And the guy grabbed one of the family heirlooms, which was this glass pitcher. And it had been washed, and he had a towel, and he was wiping it off, and he dropped it, and it smashed everywhere. And he just felt horrible. Just He was just crushed for breaking this valuable uh, 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 dinnerware item. 
And t- Tom Wright and his wife were just mortified. And of course, like you would, like doing their best to be like, it's not a big deal. It's okay. It's not a big deal. Let's just clean it up and it's fine. And as, uh, uh, you know, the guy went home and, and they went to bed and they were thinking about it. And the more they thought about it, the more upset they were getting. The more they thought about the loss of this item, the more upset they were getting. And the angrier they were getting, too. Not, not that, you know, they weren't mad because they, they thought he did it purposely, but just at the carelessness. Like, this is an item that the two of us were so gentle with because it's so valuable. And then here's this guy who doesn't have that same sense of value, and he was just careless. And they were getting angry. And then a few days later, they were thinking, what do we have to, what do we, what do we need to do about this? And their solution was, let's, in three weeks, we're going to have another dinner party and we're going to invite that man and his wife back. And at the end of the dinner party, we're not going to bring it up. We're just going to invite him to help us clean up again. That was the best way. That was the best way to make the forgiveness fleshed out and real is to say, hey, you're back on mission, the mission of helping us clean up this party. That's exactly what Jesus does with Peter here, is he introduces him to mission. This, by the way, this, this is the ground of your mission, is forgiveness. Forgiveness is the source of your mission. And now let me piggyback a little bit on what I said last week. Think about how incredible what Jesus did here is. There's one thing that we as Christians cannot do. and You, you can commit any sin. The one thing you can't do is deny Jesus. That's the one thing that removes you from the realm of Christianity. And that's exactly what Jesus did. It, it is the worst sin that you can commit. But in spite of that, in spite of that denial, in spite of that betrayal, not on the Judas Iscariot level, but it is a betrayal on an emotional and psychological level, and a social level too, Jesus forgives him and welcomes him back. This forgiveness, if you and I can live out, if you can be on the mission of accepting this forgiveness from Jesus, I'll talk about that in a second, and showing this forgiveness to others, this is the most countercultural, subversive thing that you can do to our world is to show forgiveness. And the reason why is this, is because forgiveness does not exist in our culture. It doesn't exist in our culture. There are two things that you can do. There are two categories that your behavior can fall into in our culture. One is, it's all permissible. No questions asked. You just do what you want. There's no rules. Like, we got to love each other and accept each other, right? And so just do what you want, no questions asked. And you should never judge somebody else for what they do. The other category, though, is the category of, it is unforgivable. There's some stuff, the, the, so here's what I'm saying. Everything is permissible. Nothing is, nothing is forgivable. The, forgiveness doesn't exist. And some stuff, the choices that you make will be in the category of like, whatever you want to do. Just do, you got to do what makes you happy. And then there's some things that just are not forgivable. I'll give you another example, again, about baseball. Listening to a guy talk about baseball this week, baseball history. And he talked about a guy who he admired when he was a kid, who he was not aware until he was researching for this podcast that this guy had in 19, in the early 1990s been arrested for sexual assault, right? Sexual assault is evil. It's one of the most evil sins that you can commit. It violates some other human being. It uses another human being against their will to their damage for your gratification. Sexual assault, I'm not, this is part of the cultural problem, is I have to explain if I'm going to say this. I have to explain that I'm actually anti-sexual assault. This guy in this podcast said he did this, and he used these two words. It's irredeemable and unforgivable. 
And this is just not the case in Christianity. There is nothing that's irredeemable and unforgivable. However, if I say that, if I say that sexual, if I say that sexual assault is forgivable, I instantly have to tell you guys, really, I'm against sexual assault because we're so ingrained by our culture that sexual assault goes in this category of unforgivable sins. Now, I'll, I'll give you, what does this do to us? This makes us incredibly vindictive, right? If people agree with us, if what they do is in the permissible category, fine, leave them alone. We don't say anything about that. If people disagree with us, if what they do is in the unforgivable category, then we blow them up. Let me read you a quote. Alan Jacobs, who is a professor of humanities at Baylor, wrote this this week. I read this this week. He said, and I'm sorry, this is so so sports heavy. This is a blog. It's a blog post about culture, but it's actually a reflection on how NBA players now, especially superstars, are working extremely hard to manipulate the refs into calling fouls. Instead of just playing the game, part of their energy is devoted to trying to force the refs to call fouls on their opponents. And I'm not going to talk about that now, but here's what he says about this. When a society rejects the Christian account, so he's he's a professor of humanities, he's also an Anglican Christian. When a society rejects the Christian account of who we are, it doesn't become less moralistic. It doesn't become like, oh, morals are weaker. It becomes more so. If you, You know this, right? If you've ever looked at social media you know that there are no more strident fundamentalists, ardent extremists, than those people who post on both sides of the cultural divide, than those people who post on social media. Our current culture, postmodernism, has not made us less moralistic. It's made us more moralistic. It's made us more ready to preach. It's made us more self-righteous. Here's what he said. Because, here's why, here's why it makes us more moralistic. Because it retains an inchoate sense of justice. This, like, Little baby, we all have this sense that there's a right and wrong inside of us, but it has no means for offering and receiving forgiveness. There's no mechanism by which wrong can be undone. There's no way that sins can be covered up and forgiven. They're just there. And if somebody commits sexual assault, they can never undo that. There's no amount of door holding that they can do for a woman or community programs that they can do to benefit struggling women, homeless women, single mothers. There's no amount of work that they can do to pay for the sin that they committed. Our culture has no no idea of forgiveness. And so what does this mean? The great, here's what he says. The great moral crisis of our time, catch this. This will be interesting for those of you, for a lot of you, I'll say. The, the great moral crisis of our time is not, as many of my fellow Christians believe, sexual licentiousness, sexual uh, permissiveness. That's not the great moral crisis of our time. The great moral crisis of our time is vindictiveness. This desire to make somebody else suffer, to say something that's going to get, to say something that's going to pay them back for the wrong that they've done, or to do something that's going to make them suffer. Social media, he goes on to say, serves as crack for moralists. There's no high like the high you get from punishing malefactors. And so what this division has done, this division of everything's permissible, or there's some things that are just not forgivable. What this has done is it's created two classes of people, and we're almost done. So, so don't 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 lose uh, uh, don't drift on me here. There's two classes of people, and some of us bounce back and forth. There's the class of people who don't need forgiveness. I, what, what do I need forgiveness for? I'm fine. I'm no different than other people, you know. I'm, I'm I don't need any help. And then there's the other class of people who believe that they don't, there's no way possible that they can get forgiveness. 
And, and many of you, and I'm going to say most of you, will bounce back and forth between these two things. If you're thinking about some parts of your life, you'll be no sense at all that I need Jesus. No sense at all that I need to be reconciled. No sense at all that I'm, that, that, that I'm accepted to God and I can offer that acceptance to others. Why do you need, I'm fine. But there's some parts of your life, I know there's some parts of my life that I can't speak out loud to you guys, either in front of you like this or individually, which I just cannot believe that they're forgivable. They will always be there. There's a sort of gratification that I have when I suffer for those sins because I deserve it. And what God is offering us is neither one of these things. The things that we do that we long to put into this category, and our culture gives us permission to put in this category, are far, far worse than we can imagine. They're far, far damaging. The petty grievances that we hold and harbor against each other, little tiny lies that we tell, those little bits of lust in our head, those little tiny places in our soul where money kind of owns it. These are so far more damaging to you than you imagine. These are so far more damaging to the people around you than you imagine. These are so much more heinous in the eyes of God than we can possibly imagine. And they need to be forgiven. But the things that you think are unforgivable, say it this way, this is a a line from Tim Keller, right? The, 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 The grace of God and the ability to forgive your sins and to freely accept you no matter what you've done in the past is so much more greater than you can ever imagine as well. And what we have, we have, what we as Christians have to offer is completely counterculture, cultural. It's neither acceptance, you know what I mean, we should accept everybody, but acceptance in a moral sense. And neither is it judgment. And too far often as Christians, we've bounced back and forth between these. These have been our two choices. Do you accept or do you judge? And the mission that we've been called to, the mission that God's putting Peter on, because it's the, it's the thing that, that Jesus is offering Peter here, is not the mission of permission. It's not the mission of judgment. It's the mission of forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Amen.